0: Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast
1: for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now, onto the episode with your host,
0: Harry Kemsley.
1: Hello, and welcome to this edition of World of Intelligence by James. I'm your co host, Harry Kemsley, and as usual, Sean Corbett's with me. Hello, Sean. Hello, Harry. Good to see you again. We get quite a lot of comments on our podcast, I'm pleased to say, and some of them are actually quite positive from time to time, which is a pleasant surprise. We also get quite a few requests or topics or things we might want to discuss, and one of those has come up quite a lot recently, is to look at how the journalism world deals with open source intelligence. And so in direct response to that request from several of our listeners, we thought we might actually bring an eminent force in the journalistic world who also knows a bit about open source intelligence. So we've invited a highly successful journalist from an internationally recognized newspaper. It was recently written about OSINT, and our guest today is Warren Strobel. Hello, Warren.
0: Hello. Good to be with you both, uh, Harry and,
1: uh, and Sean. Thanks. Thanks, Warren. Thanks for being here. For any listeners that do not know but Warren, he covers intelligence security at the Wall Street Journal's Washington Bureau. He has traveled with eight U.S. Secretaries of State and covered conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, Africa, and elsewhere. He and his colleagues' award-winning work at Knight Ridder newspapers, challenging the Bush's administration's case for invading Iraq, was featured in the 2018 Reiner movie, Shock and Awe. Since late 2021, Warren has written extensively about how open-source intelligence has transformed the war in Ukraine and global understanding of that conflict as well as its impact on the mission of US and Five Eyes intelligence agencies. Warren, thank you so much for being
0: here. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you for having us. As are we. So
1: we, Almost always, in fact, I think it is always, we go through a definition of what we mean by open source intelligence, Warren, just to set the standards, set the understanding of what we mean by open source intelligence. I'll get Sean to do that in just a moment to make sure that we are all talking about and listening to the same concept. Sean, open source intelligence, what are our four defining features?
2: Yeah, at risk of boring our regular listeners, but actually, it's quite important just to make sure we're we're defining our parameters. But for us, there are four components of open source intelligence. First of which, it has to be derived from information that is freely or commercially available to all. So you might have to pay for it, but anybody in the street can actually access it. The second, and very much linked, is that it has to be derived from legal and ethical sources and techniques. So we, we, you know, we don't do any of the gray area stuff. And then the the final two really are as relate to all sorts of intelligence, actually, not just open source. And that's that to be intelligence, as opposed to information, it has to be applied to a specific problem set or requirement. And then finally, it has to add value. The so what, as I call it.
1: Great stuff, and Warren. Hopefully, that all makes sense to you as well, given your particular role in world.
0: Yeah, it does. I mean, one of the I think one of the problems uh, quandaries on the at least on the U.S. side is there are different definitions that are bandied about, and people use the term open source intelligence a little too loosely sometimes, so I'm really glad that you have a, 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 definitions are important, I'm glad you have a a strong definition. there. Yeah,
1: and we will come back to that if we need to. Maybe we certainly separate out information from intelligence for the reasons that Sean has said, but as we said at the beginning, useful to uh, be clear about what we mean by open source intelligence or OSINT. All right, so... One of the things I would really, where I'd like to start first, Warren, is around your view on the utility or value of that open source environment for information and intelligence and how that supports you in the work that you do, which we can describe as being responsible investigative journalism rather than the more tabloid version of that, perhaps, but we'll come back to that point later. So how do you use the open source intelligence and information environment in your work, Warren?
0: Well, I think it's just exploded in the last uh, recent years, the amount of information that's available to me as a journalist, and particularly since uh, it really came to the fore with the uh, buildup, Putin's uh, buildup to the invasion of Ukraine, and then the actual invasion. I remember 20, 30 years ago, I wrote an article about commercial satellite technology, and this was when it was first, at least in the U.S. side, being migrated slowly, from governments to to where commercial satellite with very low resolution was available. And then you fast forward into today where there was just so much information available to us about battlefield in Ukraine, satellite imagery, social media postings. And that in turn is being analyzed by very smart people, not just people off the street, but people who have a background in OSINT or former US military, former UK military, former intelligence officers. And I think it just kind of Transformed our ability to understand what was going on and report about it.
1: Yeah. We might spend a few minutes, John, in a second, talking about what specifically has changed and how that has driven open source intelligence inside the intelligence community, but also uh, for you, Warren, in terms of as a journalist, what specifically has changed. But we'll come back to that in a minute. How do you feel, though, Warren, the changes, the increased availability of open source information and intelligence has affected your ability to get to, in quotes, the truth? the ability to get to actually what's happening versus maybe not quite a clear picture in the past perhaps yeah
0: that's a really good question i mean i think it's as journalists and as as former intelligence officers you don't rely on any one source and open source broadly speaking is just one source of information for us but it's an increasingly important one and when you can see pictures of uh you know russian battalion tactical groups moving or on the ground, arrayed in certain ways and analyzed by smart people about where that BTG came from, what it means. That helps a lot. But it's vital also to put that together with our on-the-ground reporters. And the journals had many people covering the conflict and dangerous situations, really dangerous situations, as well as our own uh, sourcing in Washington, human sources, U.S. officials, U.S. intelligence officials, other sorts of analysts. And so so we try and do what you call all source. Open source is an increasingly important part of that.
1: Yeah, I I, um, remember, Sean, from our previous conversations where we've talked about the utility of open source across the intelligence spectrum. We've talked about things like the fact that it gives us a better context in which we might see discrete actions, events. We've also talked about the ability for us to understand the implication of things more broadly because it shows those things more carefully in open source. But in a few words, Sean, what do you think are the the big changes that the intelligence community has seen? We've talked about before for the open source intelligence availability. What are the things that have come forward for the intelligence community?
2: I think the most important thing probably and warren's touched on all of it actually is the there's just the exponential increase in technology really i mean the imagery that you mentioned you know not not just the resolution the fact it's in color but the fact that you can actually access it and you can buy it not quite near real time but uh the prolifer- proliferation of satellites now is extraordinary at the level of resolution that we'd be happy to actually do analysis of but it's not just the imagery side either of course you've got rf as well so that's almost like commercial sigint so you can actually look stuff by what it's emitting and then there's radar etc but also i think i would i would touch on the fact that and we've talked about this before as well as that every person is their own sensor and the fact that the internet is out there and all pervasive means you can basically access every sensor all the time so bringing those all together i think uh, you know that that does give challenges in itself in terms of there is so much data out there how do you yes. then filter it and, and make sure it's done in the right way? And, and just finally, I know you said briefly, but you know that's one of the definitions of OSINT that we, we kind of do touch on sometimes. So open source intelligence <laughs> does comprise commercial SIGINT, humint, IMMINT. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's different to the others.
1: Yeah, it is. And at the risk of deep diving too deeply into that, let's just step back for a second, uh, Warren, and look at the problems that we have certainly talked about in our recent episodes, and we'll be talking about again and again, I'm sure, which is the problem of this explosion of information and the power in that information driving malintent, the disinformation that you can find in the open source environment and how that might be uh, deliberately trying to drive certain understandings of things or misinformation, which could be where things are not necessarily intended to derive the wrong outcome in understanding, but are doing so anyway. How do you deal with, how does a Wall Street Journal deal with mis- and disinformation?
0: It's a really good question. And it's um, it's a huge concern. The more information you get, the more opportunities there are for bad actors, or as you said, maybe even people who aren't intending to be bad actors to recirculate something that's misinformation or deliberate disinformation. We have a very structured process and it's it's... I don't like to overstate the similarities between journalists and intelligence analysts, but actually there are quite a few and very simple rule, which is the more controversial, the more important, the more impactful the information, then the higher the level of scrutiny that goes. So at the journal, if we're going to write a front page story that is going to affect geopolitics or a business sector, there is a very, very structured process in terms of looking at the information. Our editors need to know what our, can can ask who our human sources are, how many, are they in a position, were they in a position to know what they are telling us? And then if you get into the non-human sources where we're basing our conclusions on Commercial SIGINT, which is now, as uh, Sean said, is now somewhat available, or imagery. You want to cross check that with, with other sorts of information to make sure you're accurate. And the last point I would make is that we also have begun to go through training at the journal. And I'm sure other major news organizations are doing this, both in the US and UK, where we've gone through training about what is a deep fake, how to spot them, how prevalent are they becoming. Yeah. Uh, we're far from perfect, but there is a process.
1: Yeah, I mean, Sean and I had a conversation with Di Cook, who talked to us a great deal about deepfakes, synthetic uh, material. And actually, the impression I got from her was that there was a growing war of AI, AI trying to create deepfakes, AI trying to detect deepfakes. And actually, the battle was not going the right way, was the impression I got from our conversation, Sean. But nonetheless, I think we came to the conclusion to be not, Sean, that tradecraft remains a key component in the mitigation of that, which is what you've just spoken about.
2: Yeah, and this is the art versus science of, of intelligence, really, You know, whether it's open source or not. It's, just, it's all about trusting the data. And doing everything you can to trust what you've got by you know and i'm sure warren's got his sources where he just knows that if somebody says something that's right so that's derived over time but you've got to ref- cross-refer that with the more tangible stuff like if you can see it on imagery or if there's a, a there's something that that is being emitted, or even multiple people saying the same thing so the, the whole corroboration thing and it but it all comes down in the end to To trusting that data which is something that comes in time and i would say you know the reason it's called intelligence is because it's the best analysis and assessment you can come up with with the information that's available otherwise it'd be called information you know so yeah
1: yeah uh, fair point all right let's pivot round a little bit from where we are then in terms of the overall use to the what has changed in the recent times. You mentioned this in your introduction, Warren, in terms of that change from 30 years ago, where satellites were pretty much the domain of government only. And now, I think we talked about this before, you can almost task a satellite on a credit card transaction, you know, almost there but right now. But let's focus this around Ukraine, because you've you've written an article on the open source value that's being derived in Ukraine, how that's changing things, which will, by the way, for the listener, we will have that in the link for this podcast for you to go and read that article. In your mind, what are the big things or that have changed in the open source information and intelligence environment? Using Ukraine as an example, what are the kind of things that leap out at you as being the big, big change tickets from the recent times?
0: Let me start off by saying, uh, as a journalist, I need to be a little bit humble in that I think I know that open source is getting me closer and closer, larger percentage of what intelligence agencies can see, but it's not 100%. And I, for example, did not have uh, Mr. Putin's uh, secret war plan to invade Ukraine, whereas it's been reported that the CIA and I'm sure the uh, allied partners in the UK did have all or part of that plan. I, as a journalist, didn't using open source couldn't find uh, Ayman al zawahari and and kill him in a in a safe house in Kabul as the CIA did. I'm sure with help from from allied partners. So, open source doesn't get us a hundred percent of the way there, but increasingly. I can I can see a picture that is is more like what intelligence analysts in their classified spaces are seeing based on some of the things you talked about, Harry. And again, it's not just imagery. That's one thing. But there's uh, the social media. Yeah. You had in the early days of the Ukraine conflict images of Russian tracked vehicles moving into Ukraine. And you had analysts who previously worked for the U.S. government looking and saying, looking at the tracks of those vehicles and saying those things aren't very well maintained. You know, these people would watch these particular class of weapons and they could actually look at them and say there are problems there. And that's just one one example. Um, yeah. There's the the RF example that um, that Tom mentioned. There's a company in the U.S. who I won't mention because I don't want to do PR for them, but they um, have a fleet of satellites up there to intercept RF signals. And they've done some really interesting work uh, catching the Chinese uh, commercial fishing fleet um, encroaching on an environmental zone in the Galapagos, for example, and all sorts of other things. And increasingly, we are... The Wall Street Journal has an informal uh, partnership with Maxar. um, Yep. Satellite imagery, and increasingly, we're probably going to look at other sorts of application. I'm sorry, cooperation with with companies doing RF and stuff. And we might even be able to say, hey, we can't pay you, but we'll task you to do this particular problem for us, and you get public relations benefit from it. Yeah. We're actually partnered with the same organization
1: as well as um, with the Maxile organization you've talked about, which leads me, Sean, to a question that we've discussed before about this ecosystem of the commercial and the government environments. The fact that it's not yet fully formed or working as effective as it could be is perhaps a criticism of both sides. But I think there's a great deal of power, is there not, in such an ecosystem being formed and of the sharing of what we're finding in the open source environment to create really insightful intelligence. Sure.
2: Yeah, undoubtedly. And it's something that I think the the, the Russian crisis, if there is a positive out of it at all, has actually made both sides more intuitively aware of the other and what the needs are. So, you know, and I think it's a really important point that Warren said is that I don't think open source will ever um, give 100% the answer. Certainly not on everything, and it so no, it must be used in in sympathetic mm-hmm. paradigm, um and even integrated into the into the high size stuff. So for me, the real value of open source intelligence right now is, as you mentioned before, the context, the the basic intelligence, the foundation intelligence that gives you the sort of the, the starts you off in terms of. Right, where are we trying to go with this? Now, that's not to say that there aren't elements of open source intelligence that are unique. And you know, I think it's fair to say that in any intelligence organization or any government, you know, there are not unlimited resources. So there are places they're going to be heavily focused on, so they can get Alzoa here and other things like that. And other things that they simply aren't going to be able to looking at. And you gave a couple of great examples there. So so I think there's definitely some coordination, cooperation needed in terms of, well, look, we're doing this high side stuff, the operational stuff. What we need from you is either foundational stuff or something that is yeah. not maybe number one priority. So there's a real conversation that needs to be had there. And then there's the element which we might come and talk to about the immediacy. You know, we always used <laughs> to say in, in the intelligence community within the UK that, you know, we can't beat the CNN factor. We're never going to get first to the first to the information. Well, you know. If we use that same information, then maybe we are going to be at the same time. The key though is to make sure that you're as accurate and correct in the reporting as possible. There's a lot in there.
1: Yeah, the immediacy versus accuracy point is worthy of discussion perhaps another time I think as well as the context, time sensitivity piece, the indicators and warning you can get out of open sources that you know haven't quite reached the ambient the ambient noise level for others to leap on it. But if you can find that signal in the noise, you can act on it. Let's turn this around now, Warren. I'm now working as an intelligence analyst in a government organization. And I've just read your article and I thought, how did he know that? I'm gonna to speak to Warren. I'm gonna try and see if he can help me in my work. So um. So how do do you deal with that? Because let's be honest, we talk about social uh, media, there's also the more traditional media as an open source, right? If the Wall Street Journal is saying something, I'm going to read it because it's an eminent publication which will have done its homework and we trust its standards and its uh, ethics process, for example. So how do you deal with that intelligence inquiry when I'm going to ask you to become a source
0: for me? How much do I help you guys is what you're asking me. Yeah, how much could you help me? Yeah. This is a really uh, kind of gray area for us as journalists. Um, We want to do everything to make sure we, in my case, maintain independence from the U.S. government and do not become an arm of the U.S. government, do not become an intelligence uh, source for the U.S. government. But at the same time, there's there's several things going on. There's a normal interaction in Washington, in London, in other Western capitals of journalists with officials, including intelligence officials. And... In order to get information, sometimes I might have to share information. And certainly you want to compare notes with a knowledgeable official. So that's that's sort of sanctioned. I think where it kind of crosses the line is where I provide, if I would ever get into a position where I'm providing a steady stream of intelligence on an issue of common concern with the U.S. intelligence agency, that is not something I'm reporting to my readers because my readers... Who right. pay to read the journal or read it online, or are my are the audience? So yeah, I, I need I need to interact but maintain my independence. It's a bit of a juggling act.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sean, you um, and I spoke with we spoke about ethics recently, did we not, with uh, Dr. Amy Ziegert on the episode a few weeks months ago now. Warren, ethics I know will be in the standards and practices and processes of the Wall Street Journal. How do you deal with that ethical issue? Because I think the working, what you've just said about working with the intelligence agencies is raising an ethical issue, isn't it? How do I operate as a journalist seeking the truth, seeking to report the truth for the, the greater good, but do so in an ethical way? What What are your approaches to the ethics of the open source environment?
0: So in terms of covering intelligence agencies, I'm, I'm going to talk about my tradecraft here a little bit. but. The CIA is the main agency I have to cover along with ODNI in my daily work. And it's a tough place to cover for a number of reasons. Everything's classified in sort of a self-protective cult of people who, uh, you know, have a mission and they're, they're all very good, but they're very, uh, it's a closed system. So I do trust building. It's the only way I figured out to, of how to, to do it. And. Right. So I I take my time. I be patient. I get people to understand that I'm not looking for some sensationalist scandal and that I understand what I'm talking about and that I I don't want to do fluff pieces, you know, soft pieces, but I want to um, really understand what's going on. So that takes time. I don't think that's so much of an ethical question, but then there is the concern. Am I being too easy on U.S. intelligence? I. the proof in the pudding there is if if uh, if and when, I shouldn't say if, when the next uh, intelligence scandal surfaces, I will hopefully write it hard, right. a little bit hard. Yeah, so that's, I also wanted to say, um, Harry and Sean, that the, the sort of interaction, I think, between reporters and intelligence officials may change a little bit when you're on a battlefield. Sure. Where the issues are a little bit more acute, and um, I think there's a natural sort of cooperation and coalescence of of two people who are in different professions yet kind of trying to seek truth on a battlefield.
1: Yeah, and under under the similar physical threats. Sean, does that sound familiar to you? Go ahead.
0: Yeah, it
2: does. And, and it's back down to the trust word, but this this time, you know, not in the data, but in, the, in each other, particularly military people and the IC, you know, very, very sceptical at all times of journalists, because, you know, there's been fingers burnt where you've said stuff that, we you know, off the record, there's no such thing as off the record, we know that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, where it might harm or actually harm you personally in terms of your boss gives you a really hard time for saying something they shouldn't have done because of operational security or the rest of it. And, and, you know, there was a little game, it's it, it, we're kind of through that now, but certainly in the nineties where, you know, some of us who were, you know, on the pointy end would actually do the media opt courses so that we knew how to, you know, the ABC answer bridge communicate, because we knew that we were trying to get information from us. But, you know we didn't want to catch ourselves out. I think we're a little bit more mature that. So then the journalist would then go to the CN show who hadn't had that training and gave more information out. But I do think that the closer you get to the battlefield where you are sharing those experiences, particularly with you know, and I call it responsible journalism, where you want to report on, you know, what it's like actually out there on the front line? What are we actually seeing as opposed to what all the filters come up and then back in the in our capitals is like, looks good to report. So I think there is a real value there in getting to that tactical truth. And then there's the human stories as well. So it's kind of a, it, it is a tricky one, but it's all down to exactly as Warren said, developing trust that someone isn't going to, in, your, in my terms, stitch me up, but equally get the story out without being too subjective either side.
1: Yeah. So Warren, let me just um, take us back a couple of questions, a couple of points ago. Um, Sources, in the James world, they have a a golden set of sources that we use from open source environment regularly because they're known to be reliable and they provide us with good insight to things that we are interested in. Presumably in your own tradecraft, in your own journalistic endeavor, you have similar sources, do you not? Do you have an ability to reach out to certain places to get the information that you need and do so reliably?
0: Yeah. Again, it takes often if I want to get a source that is not sort of just I don't even use the parroting because that's pejorative, but is repeating the official line of the U.S. government or something. It All takes right. uh, trust building. It takes meetings. It takes a little bit of convincing. But uh, it, after you've dealt with somebody for some period of time, and they have not led you astray, and they tell you what they know and what they don't know, and um, it's clear that they don't have an agenda beyond trying to help you, then that becomes what you call a golden source. And even then, I wouldn't. There's very few human sources that I would trust 100%, but that gets you to about 90% right. Then there's other yeah. things. It's when, as a journalist, somebody calls, emails, uh, texts you sort of as we say over the transom and they have something sensational they want to share. And I want to talk to that person for sure, but I'm not going to take it at, um, you know, without a huge grain of salt until I get to know them and their information and what their background and agenda is. And I think getting back to some points that Sean was making, you know, this analysis, there's a, it's more art than science. It's something that I've been a professional journalist for 35 years and you all have done for decades as well. And there's a sort of a, a calibration radar factor that it's kind of hard to put into words just quickly let me squeeze this one in
1: before we close or start to close how do you validate from a source that you're less familiar with that you don't have that sense of trust but there's a big story that you need to get in front of and you're hearing this story from a a location that you're not used to dealing with how do you do how do you deal with the validation of that
0: yeah that's a tricky situation because uh Let's say there's an example that it has to do with Ukraine and it's a competitive story. It's a story of global import and um, life and death, really. And somebody comes in over the trans with important information that would put the Wall Street Journal ahead of that story. I mean, you want there's a t- human tendency to want to believe that. But I think my first. Um, move would be to gather around a few trusted colleagues who have the good sources of their own, who know the, you know, the US uh, national security apparatus and the global scene and and to share it with them and see if they can get corroboration or confirmation.
1: So plausibility and then corroboration. Plausibility from people think, yeah, that sounds about right. Sean, does this sound familiar to you at all? It's, it's yeah, certainly-
2: it, you know, it's almost definition of tradecraft, really get as many sources as you can but you develop it over time and you know without getting into the technology it's exactly the same with AI algorithms if over time that they proving to sort of give give insight that it turns out to be right then you're going to trust them and continue with them but some of them are absolutely rubbish and it's the same with sources and I think there's another point there um, because everyone thinks that human, as I would call it so talking to people if it's human it must be right because you've spoken to somebody and they've said something even if they're not There's no disinformation there. It's still all about people's perspectives. So you're talking to someone who believes something, but that's not necessarily based on validated information themselves. So you've got to go through those layers. But ultimately, exactly as you said, Warren, you've got to go with the best possible, it's the art of of assessing, you know, does that feel right? Does it sound right? You know, does it meet all the rest of the, the things that you know about? And then that's the final thing I would would say on on this particular piece is that you know the expertise the background the experience of the individual whether it's an experienced journalist or whether it's an experienced intelligence person is so important that is about the art you know you mentioned about the the vehicles and the Russian vehicles have been sent there for ages it wasn't just they weren't being serviced it was the fact that the tires, if they're not run frequently, just go off. You can't use them anymore. So, But only a logistician or somebody that's an expert on tires, or I don't know who they are, would have come across <laughs> with that, and they go, oh, right, yeah, okay, didn't know that. So so it's the background knowledge that in all of our spheres that's important.
1: Yeah. And Warren, where did the buck stop? When the story is going to be put on the front page, the Wall Street Journal is going to put something on the front page. That's a significant event. That's not a non-trivial, oh, we no. just have to put the story. Where does the buck stop for that to happen? Who actually makes the call on that?
0: That's a that's a good question. Um, you're right. It's a non-trivial event. Obviously, there's some stories like our current uh, political um, turmoil in the U.S. that are going to land on the front page. And uh, But if it's a story that's more investigative, or as we say, enterprise, and it has some controversy to it, it's going to ruffle feathers, it's been worked on for weeks or months, then that, it's ultimately the editor-in-chief. But we also have an editor who is... Their only job is their editor of the front page. And we have a very senior member of the leadership team, um, the standards and ethics editor, who has the power to review and to hold or ask questions. Um, So it's it's what we call stadium editing. It goes up.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. we have something similar in Janes, and I have to tell you that people in Janes who have to do that editing aren't always the most popular with our analysts, and indeed our journalists, because they, quote, slow things down. But to use the point we made earlier, immediacy versus accuracy, we'd rather be right than first. And in some cases, for James that's more important than it is on others. All right, look, I know that time is going to, in fact, time has elapsed on us. I'm going to start drawing stumps uh, on this conversation. Sorry, a cricket reference there for the non-English listeners. you'll have to
0: explain that to me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'll do that off off mic. Um, So Warren, in a second, um, I'm going to ask Sean first. I always ask my our guests um, if you had one thing you wanted the listeners to take away from this conversation. In this case, about journalism and open source intelligence, what's the one thing you'd want them to remember out of this conversation? So I'm going to throw the ball at Sean first, because I always uh, end up eating his sandwiches uh, by yeah. going first normally. So I'll go with Sean first. Sean, what's your what's your one takeaway from today?
2: Oh, that's great because you're not going to eat my sandwiches. And, and as always, I'll cheat because I think there are two. I think the it's very striking the similarities within the process that we have to go through between the intelligence community and responsible journalists in terms of you know making sure the sources are correct making sure that you are ethical legal and all those good things and using a lot of the same sources actually in a a different way and the second thing that's linked to that is that um not all journalists are the same uh you know investigative journalists like yourself responsible ones, absolutely brilliant and can really help with the intelligence community i don't see some people on what some people might call the, the main mainstream media as being journalists. I've seen them as sensationalists, yeah. so I'll
1: leave it there. <laughs> Warren, well, what's your uh, one takeaway for today?
0: I think the one takeaway is the world of secrets is shrinking. Uh, as we said point. a couple times, I'm now able to access 90%, 85 92% of, of what government um, intelligence analysts can and that puts a little bit of a stress on me. It's more information. It's more information to analyze and um, and to verify, make sure it's not dis- disinformation. But it also, I think, and we we haven't really discussed this because it's not the main topic of of the podcast. But it's a, it puts huge stresses on um, five eyes intelligence agencies. Um, how do you gather that expanding list of information, vet it, and how do you you how do you use it to properly cue? the smaller amount of uh, activity that only the intelligence agencies can do. How do you properly use your secret assets to the best of their ability? Sometimes being tipped and
1: cued by the the open source. Yeah, that's actually a perfect segue for my one takeaway, which is almost exactly that, which is that ecosystem point we made some minutes ago. The idea that the commercial environment, the open source environment and the classified closed environment should or could be working much more collaboratively getting this stuff done is difficult in terms of security protocols. It's difficult in terms of commercial protocols as well. I get all of that. But the reality is we have a joint problem of dealing with the world of information, disinformation, and misinformation. And that can be largely, not entirely, largely addressed by open sources. All right, Warren, I am As ever, immensely grateful for any guest, but particularly yourself coming in at short notice to talk to us about the world of journalism and open source. I suspect much of what we talked about for you will feel like what's changed. I mean, we've always used open sources in the journalism world, but you've shone a light for us into the world of open source intelligence and its relevance to you as a journalist at an August publication like the Wall Street Journal. So thank you so much for your time. Very, very grateful.
0: Thank you. It was really a great conversation and a pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you, Warren. Sean, as ever, thank you. And we'll come back and do this again sometime soon. Yeah,
2: thank you Thank you. you Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, chainscom slash podcast, where you can subscribe
0: to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.